0: Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. I'm Brian Wilson, and today we have a new installment in our course, Nationalism versus Globalism. We will be discussing Michael Anton's The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. We're going a little bit out of order with the reading list because I had the opportunity to read The Stakes in a local reading group with some thoughtful friends. The lecture will be broken up into three parts. First, some introductory thoughts on Anton's theoretical approach. Then, to his account of how and why the United States seems suicidally oriented away from remaining a distinct nation and toward being part of a global world state. And finally, we will, we will examine an extremely illuminating essay by an anonymous writer about the stakes that's more of a response than it is a review, that helps us see fundamental problems that the political class and a commercial public republic must understand in order to govern well. So, we begin with some introductory remarks. <clears throat> Anton's book, The Stakes, came out shortly before the 2020 presidential election. It would appear then that its short term goal was to aid Donald Trump in his re election bid. This book is much more than that and will be profitably read for years to come. It is a refreshing mixture of Straussian and online right thought. The core of Anton's thinking seems to be Straussian, insofar as there, he shows a consistent awareness. That there are fundamental problems that plague the quest to to perfect politics. Um, This seems to undergird all of his thinking. And he seems to have learned things from the online right, who are often more willing than Straussians are, at least generally speaking, to notice uncomfortable trends in contemporary politics. You might say that to win an argument, a Straussian might perform a philosophical genealogy on wokeness and smile when they connect the dots back to Kozhev or Hegel. Argument over whereas someone on the online right would be more at home in just saying that wokeness is anti-white and therefore bad. One of these things is safer to do than the other. Now, people who are influenced by Strauss often say, correctly, that every political regime is a cave in the Platonic sense, which is to say it fundamentally shapes the souls of its denizens in ways that are often not fully realizable by them. Most people, or at least a lot of people, you could say, think of themselves as autonomous beings who are completely free to choose what they believe as if picking from a menu rather than being habitually moved in sub-rational ways toward the position they inhabit. While reading the Western great books are an indispensable aid to us in grasping the roots of many of our own present beliefs and in seeing clearly the obstacles that prevent us from seeing the world as it is, they're not quite enough to fully liberate us from the way that our regime has shaped us. If we want to get out of the contemporary cave, we have to explore it as well, instead of just performing genealogical excavations. To repeat, in a sense, Socrates did not sit at home writing essays on how Hegel and Husserl are the real source of identity politics. Rather, he probed his contemporaries about their most cherished opinions, and he refuted them, making them very angry in the process sometimes. It takes a lot of spine to have that kind of conversation. Or we could say that Socrates had a very high threshold for emotional discomfort. I think that Anton is an invaluable guide to our contemporary cave, precisely because he has spent so much time looking into what we might call the new kinds of music that are streaming into our cave, which are unprecedented. To name just one example, Anton has profitably explored the internet, and because of that, he has a real pulse on how the youth understand our present problems. In so doing, Anton understands the concerns of young men on the right as they understand themselves. He's therefore in a much better position to counsel them uh, rather than others who might call them pajama boys or who dismiss them outright. So, so much for that introduction. Let's turn to part two, nationalism versus globalism. Now we're reading this book in a course on nationalism versus globalism. So we're going to try to turn to the book with a view to really illuminating those themes. If you are interested in a more systematic approach to the book, you profit from reading Charles Haywood's thoughtful review of the book, which I will provide a link to. I've also put a link to the anonymous substack called Impasse that features the response to the stakes that I mentioned earlier. Okay, with that said, um, the book of Leo Strauss's that I couldn't help thinking back to uh, while reading Anton's book was on tyranny. Strauss's debate with the left-wing Hegelian Alexander Kojève as well as Strauss's uh, interpretation of Xenophon's Hyrum. So in that debate, when Kojève responds to Strauss's interpretation, Kojev argues for the inevitability and goodness of a universal and homogeneous state, or what we might call a world state. In an essay that came out at nearly the same time as the stakes called The Enemy is an Idea, Anton wrote, Our enemy, the idea of which I write, denies the existence of enemies. Like the devil, it is seductive and promises great goods. It preaches universal brotherhood, global unity, a borderless world. Also, like the devil, it has many names. Liberal international order, rules-based international order, new world order, neoliberalism, among others. But its truest name is universal and homogenous state. To speak more precisely, the universal homogenous state is the underlying philosophic idea the others are epiphenomena, attempts to make concrete indeed what the universal homogenous state prophesies in speech, end quote. So that comes out of Roger Kimball's edited volume, Who Rules? Sovereignty, Nationalism, and the Fate of Freedom in the 21st Century. And I have a review of that book. Uh, it's, it's a very nice little volume, um, but I will put a link to that as well. Now, if we wanted to put Anton's quotation here in our own words, um, we could say this, whether every leftist realizes or realizes it or not, not to mention many mainstream conservatives, their actions inch us closer to a universal and homogenous state, and therewith to, this, to the destruction, necessarily, of the United States as a distinct nation with a distinct people and a distinct goal. This might sound extreme or far-fetched to some, but I think that even a cursory glance at the evidence that Anton summons in the stakes will make this quite clear um but maybe maybe as a preliminary taste of the evidence uh, i found a very very brief brief and pithy article by victor davis hansen um, called the coup we never knew since anton cites hansen with admiration several times in the book i suspect he would generally agree with this list in this article the coup we never knew hansen lists 17 categories of problems facing the united states each sentence in the article raises a question, except for the final sentence. To go through the categories, he lists the border and its near non-existence, our staggering debt ceiling, the turn against one of our plentiful energy sources, natural gas, the intimidation of Supreme Court justices, government censorship of media outlets, our politicians viewing each other as genuine enemies, a politicized FBI, the trans movement, COVID overreach against our civil liberties. 70% of ballots not being cast on election day. More technology being involved in voting, and yet somehow it's increasingly less efficient and takes it, and takes us longer to count votes than ever before. Softness on violent crime and thievery. The disgraceful exit from an unsuccessful war in Afghanistan. The FBI's willingness to lie military leaders who are more loyal to China than to the commander-in-chief, universities that actively discriminate against white students. And he finally asks whether COVID or wokeness was more fundamental in canceling the Constitution. His final sentence, quote, We are beginning to wake up from a nightmare to a country we no longer recognize and from a coup we never knew. In some way, then, one way to describe the stakes that Anton and Hansen refer to are Is it possible to defeat the humans and ideas that have made the United States virtually unrecognizable? To begin with, we turn to Anton's opening chapter on California as a horrifying case study for the American future. Though, on page 277, he tells us that present-day California is too optimistic of a future to hope for. And he says this is so because the ruling class in California isn't yet done doing the work to make California into what they want, what they want it to be. Anton tells us in the opening chapter that, quote, a crucial element of the California dream in the 21st century is to marshal the enlightened future to confront, conquer, and crush the benighted past. The result is a kind of neo-feudal system in which the oligarchic class harnesses the resentment of the poor against the middle class. And those who lived in California, the longest heritage Americans, are supposed to be the biggest losers. Anton mentions the idea of inheritance in the first chapter. Maybe we are meant to hear echoes of the first book of Plato's Republic. Uh, since I think around this time, Anton also came out with his very funny and illuminating article, Beto's Republic, which I will also link. Um, but maybe he was thinking about the Republic as he was writing this. So um, the echoes that we might hear in Plato's Republic are in which Cephalus' son, Polomarchus, talks of that which a father passes to his son. It isn't just his possessions, but also arguments and moral opinions. In the case of California, it appears that for many, they have lost both forms of inheritance. They cannot afford to live there, and the moral opinions they have received keep them farther away from happiness, and without awareness that the opinions that they possess are precisely those that will keep them away from happiness. To illustrate this, Anton spins a nice vignette of an impossible romance between a female teacher and a male cop. The teacher probably lives far from her school with a bevy of roommates. She's likely been conditioned into thinking that she should spend her 20s partying and swiping through Tinder. If she meets a cop who probably also has to live far from where he works, they won't wind up married to each other because demographic data consistently indicates that women are not likely to marry men who earn less than they do. So she goes to her cats, he goes to his dogs, and they might cross paths in a grocery store thinking longingly at what might have been and then they die without any legitimate progeny. (laughs) The story ends uh, in a pretty brutal way. Um, Indeed, it is almost as if the California elite are, quote, deliberately engineering policy to encourage undesirables, wrong thinkers, and the retrograde to leave, end quote. And this should shock us when we think to the sentence in the United States Constitution that says the purpose of government is to serve ourselves and our posterity. But then Anton painfully reminds us that this statement is not in the California state constitution, and it shows. So rather than looking after its own citizens and ensuring that they receive the inheritance owed to them, we find a theological commitment to pathological altruism. And quote, nothing better illustrates this than its wide open arms for any and all illegal immigrants. We'll talk much more about immigration later. And as Anton says, this is the trend that contributes most to all the others. Overpopulation, punishing costs, crumbling infrastructure, overwhelmed public services, rapacious taxation, and two-tiered law enforcement. The people of California find themselves ruled by oligarchs who want to distance themselves from the notion that they are part of or owe allegiance to any country at all. In short, Or to kind of summarize the California case study, we could say that the standard of living has massively dropped for all but the very rich. The state is filthy and it's dangerous. The law is unequally enforced in many areas, anarchy for thieves and tyranny for those who defend themselves. It rejects federal law so that those who have come to the country illegally may enjoy the fruits of what remains of the middle-class tax base. And Heritage Americans are made to feel that they are the principal source of evil in the state, and to the extent to which it exists, its country's ills. California is no longer for those who have been there the longest. It is more concerned with its newest, often illegitimate arrivals. In order to stick with our theme of the elite's turn away from the U.S. remaining a distinct nation, we turn to chapter 3. When Anton turns to the present-day regime, he has a section on neoliberalism. We hear about politicians and oligarchs who push for a deleterious mode of free trade. Neoliberal is defined as managerial leftist libertarianism, for this movement is top-down, bureaucratic, and anti-democratic, committed to social engineering and grievance politics, and undermines virtue while promoting vice. But as Anton says, this is a bit of a mouthful. The neoliberal, quote, elevates as a matter of principle the international over the national it rejects the latter as narrow, particular, cramped, even bigoted, and celebrates the former as cosmopolitan and enlightened. To prefer one's own country over somehow helping humanity as a whole is considered by this class to be immoral and closed-minded, to be vicious and stupid. Now, If we take a very brief digression, of which I hope that Anton would approve, Um, We could look at John Quincy Adams' 4th of July address, since it offers a charming repudiation of this kind of thinking. That is the kind of thinking that elevates international concerns over national concerns. So now I'm quoting from John Quincy Adams. And now, friends and countrymen, if the wise and learned philosophers of the elder world, the first observers of nutation and aberration, The discoverers of maddening ether and invisible planets, the inventors of Congreve rockets and shrapnel shells should find their hearts disposed to inquire, what has America done for the benefit of mankind? Let our answer be this. America, with the same voice which spoke herself into existence as a nation, proclaimed to mankind the inextinguishable rights of human nature and the only lawful foundations of government. America, in the Assembly of Nations, since her admission among them has invariably, though often fruitlessly, held forth to them the hand of honest friendship, of equal freedom, of generous reciprocity. End quote. The purpose of Adam's speech is to rearticulate the wisdom contained within George Washington's farewell address. He begins his speech by talking about philosophers who are concerned with mutations. Mutation, as it turns out, is not a fake word. (laughs) I had never heard it before reading this speech. Uh, Apparently, there is a periodic oscillation of the Earth's axis that causes a precession of the poles to follow a wavy rather than a circular path. Uh, Now, uh, however this may be, Adams then suggests that the kind of person who would ask the question, what have you done for humanity, is one whose head is in the clouds whose concerns about scientific questions have rendered them blind to the political conditions which make conducting science possible at all. And this sort of scientist-philosopher, perhaps because they try to understand questions that span the globe, begin to think of their own nation's concerns as parochial or narrow. That or the scientific perspective induces a kind of objectivity into the soul of the scientist that appears to the scientist as politically neutral. We can add as well that Adams points out that these same scientists invented artillery rockets, which is to say that while scientists could potentially pursue various inventions simply in order to understand, the potential production and use of that knowledge or invention by others is not politically neutral. And so the very scientists who inhabit a global or objective perspective also produce the means by which other types of men can inflict more devastation on each other. All this is to say is that Adams imagines that you would have to be thinking far too much or far too abstractly to move away from the simple common sense answer, that it is crazy to judge a nation's goodness by how much it has benefited other nations, peoples, or humanity at large. How much have you benefited uh, like your neighbors as opposed to your family or something like that? Um, now, we can't dwell on this John Quincy Adams speech, and I hope to do a lecture or review of Angelo codavia's last book at some point in the near future, uh, a book that sinks, that thinks through how the underlying principles of George Washington and John Quincy Adams can provide m- massively superior guidance uh, to America's foreign policy. That is, isn't something that while the world has changed, we can still always move towards the principle or take guidance from the principle by asking how America's presence in other parts of the globe does or does not benefit the American people. Now let's consider Anton's approach to two other key issues related to the question of nationalism versus globalism woke capital on one hand and immigration on the other. These issues are tied together, but let's start with woke capitalism, since it naturally flows out of the discussion of neoliberalism. When I heard the term woke capital before reading this book, I didn't really think much of it. I sort of assumed it meant that corporations did performatively woke things, that potentially satisfied or fooled enough of the left into not trying to seize the wealth from those corporations, since they put on the appearance of contributing to every other aspect of the woke agenda. However, Anton really helped me clarify that in many ways, the end goals of many on the woke left and of uh, the oligarchic class are actually the same, even if they take different roads towards those goals. Here are a couple of clear examples of this um, that I found in the book broadly speaking, the ruling class browbeats women into staying into staying at school longer and to prioritize their careers over being a mother. The woke like this of course because it empowers women to have more control over their lives the oligarch likes this for a different reason now we need more housing units housing units to accommodate all of the extra households that are needed for single men and single women who are working to live in a lot of people make money off of female empowerment. Advertisers can tap into identity politics by flattering a particular group. New industries emerge to service the needs of whatever new identity group is currently at the center of thinking in the US. The shared goal of woke capital uh, and uh, and oligarchs is formulated in the following way by Anton. Um, Or I guess you could also say that he's describing the The vision that the ruling class has for the country. Their solution is first and fundamentally to transform the United States into a deracinated economic administrative zone with one size fits all rules, whose surface impartiality masks an unbending bias towards capital over wages. Uh, To sort of work through the different parts of that quote, we could say that to be deracinated is to feel as if you are from nowhere, to feel rootless, to feel as if one spot on the globe is as central as any other. A financialized economy that does not build things makes it more difficult for wage earners to secure jobs that compensate them well enough. The oligarch wants us to be consumers rather than citizens. Making the United States border porous helps to facilitate the feeling that we live in an administrative economic zone. How can you feel like a citizen if you never have to deliberate with others about your nation's vision of the good? If you never rule or or are ruled in turn, if you only have to worry about your stomach and your pleasure, it is better to enjoy the monoculture that has come to dominate the United States, which increasingly threatens to eliminate the actual geographical folkways and diverse ways that had flourished previously in the United States. Uh, the monoculture, you can sort of feel it everywhere. Rural parts of Idaho you know, feel relevantly similar to rural parts of Indiana, for instance. Um, at any rate, then we see then that the oligarchs and the woke can gain something from porous borders. They the porous borders again suit the oligarchs because each person who comes in is a consumer, and many of them will work for low wages while driving overall wages down because the supply in the labor pool is bigger. Porous borders suit the woke because support of such porousness allows them to offload some of the guilt they experience for being white. They can rest assured that they are on the side of the oppressed. The oligarch the oligarchs like low wages for immigrants and the woke can feel like our country is being enlivened with diversity one way to prepare citizens to be mere consumers is to educate them against patriotism and against citizenship as we've sort of seen but i think here anton really drills down on this a little bit more the point of education in the united states right now is quote to drill into young potentially patriotic americans that they must never ever feel proud of their country's achievements but also that they damned well better feel guilty about its sins, real, imagined, and exaggerated. In other words, paradoxically, Americans cannot claim to participate in the good deeds of the past, but they must be blamed in a tangible and financially noticeable way for anything bad that happened in the past. And to be clear, this only applies to white or heritage Americans. Other races are welcome to claim any good deed, real, imagined, or exaggerated as their own from the past, and to feel that no blame can possibly ever redound to them from any action from the past. Europeans or Americans enslaving people of color of the past is the most talked about problem, but one almost never hears of how Africans on their own continent enslaved each other and made their property easily available at ports for sale. This is not some kind of the libs or the real racist sort of argument. Rather, I just mean to say If anyone really wants groups or families to pay up generations later for evils in the past, the task is never ending and incredibly complicated, and it should not be attempted. So we turn from woke capitalism to immigration. This is one of the longest chapters in the book, and Anton devotes so much time to it because one, as he mentions earlier, mass immigration exacerbates every single one of our other problems. But at a more fundamental level, the logic of mass immigration points toward the loss of the United States as a nation, that the U.S. can become the first post-nation in the world by saying that everyone is an American. And so by making no one an American, and, and so this makes nobody an American if everybody is. Anton's book is very good at seeing or thinking through the logic of different positions and where they would inevitably wind up if they continued indefinitely. So he points out that since 1965, the United States has received approximately 90 million immigrants and the number could be higher than that. A mass migration of this scale and speed has never happened in human history. Never. The core question that Anton raises throughout this section is, what are the benefits to the existing American citizenry of the current ongoing influx of immigrants? If we can't say why this would be good for our people, then we ought to close the doors and civically digest our current immigrants into our way of life, and to have the confidence to say that we do have a way of life. America is not the property of all mankind. Our Constitution begins with the phrase, We, the people of the United States, not of the entire world. The United States is a country, not a haven. But for our ruling class, the measure of a person's goodness, and now I'm quoting Anton and ours as a society becomes our degree of willingness to hand over our country to foreigners. This view of morality is designed to promote the suicide of a nation. Okay, so there's much, much more to say about Etan's book. Uh, I mean, it's there's just so many particulars to think through, so I just wanted to kind of meditate on that particular theme. I wanted to end by summarizing the thought of what I took to be the most uh, I don't know, helpful review or response to Anton's book that I found on the internet. Somebody I think who tried really hard to understand the book and who kind of adds a lot to our thinking on this kind of thing. So um, here's the article is called Towards a Clearer Trade-Offs Conservatism, Remarks in Partial Response to Michael Anton's The Stakes. Okay. So many conservative commentators today attribute our current malaise entirely to progressive saboteurs, who steered our regime off of the tracks. Without denying that such people exist, the author of this uh, article, named Farnabazis, <laughs> uh, our Persian friend, our Persian friend proposes that the problem runs deeper and that the progressives may have been exploiting a latent potentiality that existed within our regime, within our regime type from the very beginning. Or to put it another way, that a commercial republic is vulnerable to certain vices and pathologies. By blaming our problems on progressives alone, conservatives fail to appreciate that that uh, they fail to appreciate that great liberal thinkers and the American founders did not see commercial republicanism as a perfect regime. They were aware of the trade-offs that such a regime is compelled to make. Um, and I think uh, Farnabazis goes out of his way to say that a lot of the things that he has in mind are things that Anton probably is aware of. I mean, you know, you can only do so much in a book. So that is to say some of these things aren't even really criticisms of Anton's book, just, uh, more statements on some of the fundamental, on the fundamental structure of our regime and the kinds of problems that just exist in any commercial regime. Um, and I suppose, yeah, Anton's book is more, it's more about, I think, rallying people to action. I mean, if the book is devoted to helping Trump, get elected in 2020, that means the book is devoted to action. And uh, the book is an exhortation. I think he says that explicitly, an exhortation. So exhortations are designed to move us to do something about our situation, to act upon the world and not merely to understand it. So insofar as the book is an exhortation, maybe it doesn't make as much sense for it to delve into the specific questions. But nevertheless, I think Farnabazis thinks that we will be able to act Uh, in a more clear-sighted way if we keep in view the problems endemic to all commercial republics. So at any rate, Farnabazis suggests that Anton laudably makes clear that the American state is beholden to a managerial oligarchy and that many of our problems stem from its vices. However, Farnabazis proposes that Anton might have benefited his readers more if he drew, quote, an even clearer and continuous set of lines between commerce, and political dissolution. To put this in our own words, we could say that political and commercial interests are in need of each other on one hand, but they are also in tension with each other on the other. The political form of a regime gives it its form and order. It orients its citizens towards a goal or a way of life. But politics is not possible without economics. Indeed, when Plato has Socrates build his city in speech from the Republic, he shows that in some sense, Economics precedes politics, inasmuch as economics is that which helps us fill the belly. Once the belly is full, we can think more clearly about higher-order goals we ought to pursue. But once economic interests become powerful enough, they begin seeking to dissolve political boundaries, as well as moral restraints imposed by politics, in order to extend its own power. This sort of idea is seen clearly in one of Anton's quotations about a libertarian, claiming that the United States is an economy with a country, not a country with an economy. That quotation brings out the competing claims of economics and politics with great clarity. Farnabazis is impressed by Anton's critical picture, but wonders if the overemphasis on neoliberalism as a proximate cause and progressivism as the deepest cause of our problems really gets to the roots of the issue. He thinks that we can't just consider ideas, and so he moves to suggest that neoliberalism Uh, has a pronounced antecedent in the rise and especially the effects of industrial corporate capitalism back in the late 1800s, and that it isn't progressivism alone that undid the United States, but that advertising and consumerism did as much or more than progressivism to alter the American relation to prescriptive morality. In other words, while Anton and other Straussians laudably draw our attention back to political matters, when others are inclined to look at other causes, like Beard, for instance, um, when he writes about the American founders, Farnabazus proposes that we have to constantly see how these competing claims of both economics and politics interact with each other from the very beginning of the American founding, or even the founding of liberalism, to properly diagnose our problems and their causes today. Um, well, maybe, yeah, I'll keep, I'll keep going before I add this. Um, Farnabazus provides an extremely illuminating account of the rise and the problem of the modern corporation. He begins by noting that Locke, Montesquieu, and Adam Smith all believed that while the modern economy would certainly outweigh the costs that it would entail, that on the other hand, it would come with genuine costs or risks. Namely, the economic self-interest could tip over into viciousness. Imagine a a predatory payday lender or things like that and that there could be physically diminishing effects that could follow from an unprecedented array of comforts, services, and luxuries. The railroad is the hard technology that makes industrialization and rapid economic growth possible, but the corporation is the social technology that makes it possible. Corporations sever owners from the communities where workers work, and so sever them from the moderating effects that flow from the owner going to the same church as his workers, etc., Managers are beholden to owners who live in many different places. These owners lessen their financial vulnerability by owning something with others, and they don't have to see the worker and can focus on squeezing efficiency out of the managers that they hire. The pre-corporate situation was more pro-social, or it was more easily supervised by political concerns. By severing ownership from management and labor, the corporate model vastly diminishes the shared interests of worker and owner that allow things to remain in a more pro-social equilibrium. The American founders did not anticipate the technological developments that would transform the country. And so the progressives, while misguided in many ways, were not entirely mistaken in thinking the economic conditions in the United States were radically different than they were during the founding era. We might say that what the progressives failed to properly understand or appreciate was the emancipatory effect of commerce on morality and politics. Farnabazis concludes this section by saying that, in sum, the unforeseen consequence or trade-off of commercial innovation has been the rise of corporations that have, in turn, helped catalyze oligarchic infusion of industry and political administration that America is today. In other words, neoliberalism has deeper roots in the outgrowth of a much longer history. Farnabazis then turns to the problem of modern advertising. And advises that if we might follow that we might follow Aristotle by studying the habits of the people and their relation to pleasure and pain. In the American context, this means primarily the people's relationship to acquisition and consumption, or their commercial habits. Initially, American advertising focused on needs or on how a product fits well into one's cost-benefit analysis or one's needs. It is higher quality and more useful than other products. In this approach, while usually not entirely abandoned, gave way to a new kind of advertising based on psychological attraction, where the product is sold on the basis of want rather than need, or what Plato calls the unnecessary desires. The psychology of want is more complex than that of need, and so admits of more manipulation. Advertising sought to make objects appear as if they could provide happiness or fulfillment or freedom or self-realization one takes a short flight on the wings of arrows before realizing that the object can't actually supply what it promises. Uh, I've uh, put much of this illuminating article into my own words, but I did want to quote in full one of its most helpful points. Quote, as Plato well understood before Freud, the principal moral effects of an economy of surplus goods are not only the transition From a prescriptive moral framework um, into an emancipatory frame, this is the primary characteristic of what we can call democratic drift, but a practical relativism that settles over things precisely because such relativism best accommodates a less restrained pursuit of pleasure and the rationalizations it entails. It is crucial to understand that this kind of relativism is not the result of sophists in the street broadcasting their views. It is rather an organic consequence of oligarchic antinomianism, or to put it differently, it is more or less the default moral setting of what Socrates calls a ramped up and feverish economy. And so we turn from a nation of citizens into a nation of consumers. To summarize all this maybe in one more way, we could say something like this, that virtue always entails some kind of self-restraint or sacrifice, or it says that you should desire some things, you should not desire other things. Um, whereas maybe somebody who's trying to sell you something is always trying to stimulate your unnecessary desires. And by stimulating your unnecessary desires, they're trying to emancipate you from the duties that virtue had prescribed for you, um, or something to that effect. Um, so is final judgment on this is that he insists that there was a fundamental alteration of habit that most contributed to a seismic moral shift that we see from mid-century to today. And again, he wants to emphasize that this is a concern that great liberal thinkers and the American founders uh, themselves had thought about and were worried about. And it may be that American statesmen in the late 1800s sort of lost sight of this kind of thing. So that economics was able to, um, to change the souls of the American people in ways that were not immediately detectable or something like that. Um, and that are very, very difficult to uh, reverse. So at any rate, uh, I would definitely commend Anton's book to you. I will try to link as many uh, of his other essays that I found helpful in thinking about these things. Um, and, uh, that's all. So Brian Wilson out.